0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19. And we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Acts chapter 19. Two weeks ago, Pastor Rory started here and his message was entitled, Miracles, Exorcisms, Revivals, and Riots in Ephesus. And he got the first three, but wasn't able to finish the riots part. And so he left that for me. So we're going to be doing the riots part of of Acts chapter 19, looking at verses 21 through 41. Uh, Normally we'd have you stand and read. There's a ton of stuff to read together. So we're just going to go ahead and pray and get into it. And then we're going to have kind of a a refresh summary of verses 8 through 20. So we can kind of get the context of what's going on here and what's happening and what the Lord's been doing um, in Ephesus up to this point. So let's go ahead and pray. So again, we're in Acts chapter 19. Um, Father, we just come before you. We thank you for your word. Um, We thank you, Lord God, that it is um, the roadmap to our lives. It reveals to us not only what's in front of us and the the direction and trajectory that we should be going, but also what it reveals to us your heart for us. And uh, it speaks to us, Lord. It instructs, it encourages, it corrects. Um, it rebukes at times. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word and and that it's profitable for our lives. We pray, Lord, today that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would open our hearts as we look at what's in front of us this new year, as we get back into uh, the normalcy of life after having a few days off from the holidays, we pray and ask, Lord God, that when we get back into the busyness of life, um, that you would still be on the forefront of our minds and our hearts that we would look to you. We'd be asking you, Lord, to lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, even in the confusion, the frustration, and the chaos of life, that we'd recognize your good hand on us and in all of it. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 19. If you remember a few weeks ago, Rory was talking about, he led us through uh, verses 8 through 20. And in this section we saw the hand of God working in a very prominent city to establish for himself a church to heal and to deliver, to, to save a people for himself in one of the most iconic cities in the ancient world, the city of Ephesus. And as we read through this section, um, we see the cinematic imagery and it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm surprised that Hollywood hasn't tried to make a movie of Acts chapter 19, because in it we have suspense, we have intrigue, there's tension, there's conflict, we see miracles, we see spiritual warfare, and we see one of the most incredible fight scenes ever recorded in Scripture in the pages of Acts chapter 19. And then, to top it all off, it ends where we left off last week with Revival people getting saved, lives being transformed, hearts being opened up to God. Paul has been in Ephesus now for about two years, and he's focused the lion's share of his time in a, in a school of Tyrannus, a school where he's teaching and educating people on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And verse 10 tells us that the result of that was that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. And again, notice what it says, all. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Pretty successful ministry Paul had there in Ephesus. But here's the thing. Whenever God is moving, Satan tries to disrupt the work of God, either through counterfeit, through confusion, or through conflict. Let me say that again. Whenever God is moving, Satan tries to match him step for step. Newton said this, he said that whenever there's an action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? And the same is true in the spiritual world. When God begins to move, when God begins to work, Satan ups his game to try and thwart and disrupt the work of God. And he does it through counterfeit, through confusion, or through conflict. In verses 13 and 14, we see him using it, using counterfeit and confusion, where the false priests and the seven sons of Sceva try to call upon the name of the Lord to help them exercise a demon out of a man. And we know that they're unbelievers, but they see Christians calling upon the name of the Lord to perform miracles, and they say, well, gosh, if they can do it, maybe we can do it. Perhaps the name of Jesus is stronger than any of the gods that we serve, and so they start calling upon the name of Jesus. And what happens? You guys remember the story? All of a sudden, the demon looks at him and speaks and says, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who do you think you are, right? And he jumps on them and attacks them, these seven sons of Sceva. And he literally feeds them or hands them their lunch. They're they're overwhelmed. They're overpowered. In fact, it says in verse 16 that they're wounded and left naked or humiliated. And so God is working in Ephesus in remarkable ways. And two things happen because of it. In verse 17, we see that the name of Jesus was magnified, both in the eyes of Jews and Greeks. And secondly, we see that God blessed the people of Ephesus with the fruit of repentance. As they confessed their sins and told their deeds to one another, verse 18 says, but then something else happened. The people's words were matched by their works. Their words were matched by their works. They're confessing, they're repenting, and then there was action. There was a movement in their lives to show that what they were saying they believed was actually true in their hearts and they wanted to show it. And so verse 19 tells us that they brought their magic books, those books that contained rituals and spells and incantations, and they brought them to the public square and they burned them in the eyes and in the sight of all put it in other words, these people renounced their wicked lifestyles and took drastic and costly steps to rid themselves of their past lives. I'm sorry. I got a little hair that keeps itching my nose. It's driving me crazy. In other words, they settled the issue of the Lord's, you know what I'm talking about, right, Michael? The little mustache whiskers. (laughs) They they purposed to rid themselves and to settle once and for all that Jesus was Lord. And so they rid themselves of everything that controlled them and everything that they once depended upon. In essence, what they were doing is they were burning all connections to their past life. They were burning all the bridges that could, and listen, and would eventually reconnect them to and lead them back to their former lives. And I say that because this, if we're not very distinct and we're not very um, purposeful in turning away from sin, we'll always go back to it, won't we? It's like the grooves on a record. Just recently, my daughter, youngest daughter, she just got a record player from Grandma, and she's super excited. Doesn't have any records yet, but she's super excited about this record player. And if you've ever used records before, you understand it's a, it's a polycarbonate, it's a piece of vinyl, right? And it has grooves in it. And the needle follows those grooves and it will stay in that groove as long as there's nothing that impedes its track, right? Like a scratch or dust or something like that. Our lives are like a record. And if we're not quick, when God does a work in our lives to repent from and to turn away from sin we'll fall back into that groove and repeat the same things over and over and over again. And so these guys, they took drastic, costly steps. They recognized Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they began to burn all the bridges, all the connections to their past lives, the things that they were connected to, the things that they depended upon. They burned all of those things. Why did they burn them? Because once you burn something, you can't go back to it, can you? It's just ash, it's just dust, it has, it's meaningless. And the lesson from a few weeks ago was this, if there is anything that constitutes a danger for me, or danger for you, in going back to the old haunts, the old behaviors, the old habits, the old patterns of life, then we need to take drastic steps. We need to get rid of those things in our lives. Old relationships, old friendships, old Habits and hobbies and entertainment that causes sin. We need to get rid of it. Don't keep doors open that should be shut. Amen? Amen. And so as a result of all of this, verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I love that. The word of the Lord, it grew mightily and prevailed. Let me ask you this question here this morning when did the word of, God, of the lord grow mightily and prevail in ephesus when did that happen well it tells us when christians began to confess their sin when christians began to repent and when they made decisive decisions or took decisive action to ensure that they would never return once again to their old ways they burned all the tethers to their old life. It reminds me of Acts chapter three, verse 19, where Luke writes, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I love that, the presence of the Lord. The Bible tells us that God abides in us. His presence is always with us. But notice it says this, that that happens, his presence only comes when we do certain things prior to that. And the word is repent. And that's a word that our culture does not like, does it? Even most Christians don't like the word repent. You need to repent. As we're growing up in our homes and we're teaching our kids about sin and and forgiveness and all of that, we tell them, hey, you you need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. It's always so hard. You ever had a kid that just won't say, I'm sorry? Just won't do it? Just like you can tell they're they're broken, but they just won't. They're crying, with they're not doing it. The we repent, we understand that in our minds, like, oh yeah, it's it's a turning, it's a one hundred and eighty degree, degree turn from what you were doing and the path that you were on that led you away from the Lord, and you are taking the decision, the mindful decision to turn one hundred and eighty degrees. But it's even more than that. It's even more than just, it's literally saying that now I'm going to erase or eradicate, get rid of every path that I once used to walk that led me away from God. I'm going to get rid of all those. I'll never look back to those things again. It's not this thing like, oh, repent, and then eventually go back, and then repent and go. No, it's this idea of like, it's a one and done thing. I'm repenting with the intent that I'll never return. And doing things, taking action so that we don't go back to those old grooves. Right? Does it make sense? And it says this, and be converted, be transformed, be renovated. Right? The idea of renovation, become new, that your sins may be blotted out. You might be forgiven. Why? Why must we repent? Why Why must we be converted? So that you can be forgiven. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Refreshing, revival. Last week we ended, or two weeks ago, Rory ended the study by asking the question, how many of you want revival? And they said, are you ready for it? What do you need to do in your life to prepare yourself to be ready for God to come into your life afresh and new? Right? King and Country have a song. Recently, they just kind of visited our area. My kids went to the concert. They loved it. Had a great time. And uh, they have a song called Burn the Ships. You guys are probably very familiar with it. And the chorus goes like this. And it has the idea of what's taking place here in Acts chapter 19, where these guys are being saved, and they're bringing their books, and they're burning them. They're going to cut ties with everything that they once, how how they lived, who they were. What they used to do, they're going to erase all of that. And it says, burn the ships and cut the ties. Send a flare into the night. Say a prayer, turn the tide, dry your tears and wave goodbye and step in to a new day. And then it goes on and says, we can rise up from the dust and walk away. We can dance upon our heartache, yay. So light a match leave the past, burn the ships, and don't look back. That's repentance. And so when these young believers are in Ephesus, they believed in the person, finished work of Jesus Christ. They asked God to forgive them of their sin. They repented. They were converted. They were forgiven of their sin. And times of refreshing came. Revival broke out in the city of Ephesus. And so again, if there's anything that constitutes a danger of me or of you, going back to the old haunts, the old habits, the old patterns of behavior, then you, then I, then we need to get rid of it. Amen? Amen. And so we have seen miracles and exorcisms exorcisms and revival. And now in verses 21 through 41, we begin to see the aftermath of God's incredible work in this remarkable city. Look at verse 21. It says, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Verse 22, so he sent into Macedonia two of of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. I love those words, when these things were accomplished. Paul was a man that was faithful to what God had entrusted to him. He was a man that when God told him to do something, he did it. When God told him to go, he went. When God told him to stay, he stayed. He never left a moment, a second before God told him to leave, and he wouldn't stay a moment or a second longer if God told him to to move on, right? Right? And so here's Paul and he's accomplishing these things that God has entrusted to him after the synagogue, after the teachings there in the school of Tyrannus for two years, after this powerful spiritual encounters that we read about in the first part of Acts chapter 19, after the revival in Ephesus that we just spoke of. Then Paul decides from this point on, this is my plan. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, eventually going to Rome, which is his final destination. But instead of going the logical and the shortest route, what, what is the shortest route between two points? What is it? Straight line, right? Everyone knows this. Instead of doing this, he decides to take this really strange route. If we have that map, let's put this up here. So you can see where Ephesus is circled there in the middle of your screen. And Jerusalem is where he wants to go, and that's on your, your far right, lower right, there's Jerusalem. if he wanted to go directly to Jerusalem, all he had to do is drop down south to to Miletus, get on a boat, and sail across to Tyre. And then he would just travel down to Jerusalem and he would be there in a moment's notice, right? But he decides instead, I'm going to Jerusalem. And so he goes north up to Troas, crosses the Aegean Sea in Neapolis, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea there in Macedonia, and then goes south to Achaia, eventually to go into Corinth. But he's not done yet. He could take a ship from Corinth over. He decides to go all the way back the way he came and ends up in Ephesus again, finally goes to Miletus and then takes a boat over to Tyre. Now, we don't know why he took this very awkward route. Very strange for him to do so. Uh, The book of Acts, I should say, is silent concerning why he chose to do so. But the book of Romans sheds some light on this. Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and 26 Tells us that Paul wanted to go back to these churches there in Macedo- or Macedonia and Achaia for the purpose of collecting a love offering for the church in Jerusalem. And look what it says. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution, or a love offering, if you will, a gift for the poor among the saints who were in Jerusalem. So he wants to collect a gift from all the churches in these regions, and then bring it back to Jerusalem, the mothership, so to speak, right? And for the purpose of ministering to those who are poor and in need. And this marks a a turning point in Paul's ministry and in the storyline of the book of Acts. From this point on, we're going to see Paul's trajectory is set towards Rome. But before he does that, he wants to go visit all of his friends There in Macedonia. And 1 Corinthians 16 also gives us a little more insight. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, that we just spoke of it as we saw in Romans 15, as I have given orders to the churches in Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, that being Sunday, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. Verse 22 tells us that Paul Paul then looks at Timothy and Erastus and says, hey, you guys go on ahead and and make sure everything is squared away. And I'm going to stay behind and just tie up some loose ends. What was Paul concerned about in Ephesus that he had to stay behind? Every time he's by himself, he seems to kind of get himself in trouble. And so he sends these guys off and he's staying back to take care of some business. Well, John Stott tells us this. He says, both the opportunity and the opposition necessitated his continued presence in Ephesians. We're going to look at the opportunity here in a few moments, and we're also going to see the opposition that was raised up against him. Remember what I said, whenever God is moving, Satan tries to disrupt the work of God, either through counterfeit, confusion or conflict, and the first section, verses thirteen through sixteen of Roman, or sorry, Acts chapter nineteen, we've seen counterfeit, and we've seen the confusion as unbelievers were trying to call upon the name of the Lord for their own selfish gains. And now, in verses twenty-three through forty-one, we begin to see the conflict. And the, these nineteen verses, verses twenty-three through twenty-one. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us the origin, the progression, and the resolution for the conflict that we're going to look at, the riot that develops here in Ephesus. Beginning in verse 23, he says this, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. And this is the third time that the church has been uh, referred to as the way. The second time, in fact, in this chapter. Now, why? would the way be the title of the Christian church there in Ephesus? What do you think? Remember what Jesus said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so it was a statement, whether they call themselves this or whether the people around them call them that because of what Jesus said. People remembered that Jesus said, I am the way. It could possibly have been that people were like, oh, these guys think too much of themselves. They're the way type thing, right? And then Christians were like, yeah, Jesus is the way. This is a great name for us, right? So here he talks about this great commotion about the way. So this work that God was doing in Ephesus, now people are starting to talk about it. It There's a great commotion. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen, and he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Verse 27. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And so it starts off in verse 23 by saying that there was a great commotion. The word commotion means a great distress, a tumult, a great disturbance. And at the epicenter of this disturbance, this great commotion, was a man named Demetrius, and he was a silversmith, someone that crafted objects out of silver. And in this case, Demetrius was a man that made silver shrines, we're told. In a shrine, he made these, these small idols or these images of either the temple, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, right? 127 pillars, 60 feet tall. It was just beautiful. You've seen the pictures in the past of what that looked like. In fact, at the very beginning of our study, hopefully that, that screen was up there. But also of the mother goddess Diana or Ar- Artemis. And she was the goddess of the hunt and of animals and the wilderness and childbirth and fertility. And so this man would make these images um, of either the temple or of Diana and he would sell them to people. They would take those home and they would put them on their mantle and they would worship these idols. Now, interestingly enough, Luke tells us that at the root of this commotion, it wasn't theological, it wasn't ethical, it was economic, The root of the commotion was economic. You see, Demetrius wasn't so much concerned about these people that are now new believers in Jesus Christ that were joining the way. And he wasn't too confused or frustrated about the effect that this might have on the religious status quo. What he was concerned about is that the gospel that Paul preached was cutting into his bank account, was cutting into his bottom line. Look at what it says in verse 26. This Paul has persuaded many and turned away many people. As more and more people heard the gospel and believed, they would cast off their old lives and their old idol worship. And they would then follow the true and living Christ. And so they stopped buying these these little images, these idols. And that became a major problem for Demetrius and his friends. Little side note, someone once said this, the trueness of our worship is seen in our bank accounts. <laughs> the trueness of our worship is seen in our bank accounts. In other words, what we spend on, our money on most, aside from the necessities of life, is really what we worship. Is really what we worship. What we spend our money on most is really what we worship. For Demetrius, his sales were plummeting. His affluent lifestyle was now being threatened. And so it isn't surprising that he would then link economics with religion. I mean, throughout history, economics and religion have been very closely interconnected. Case in point, the Roman Catholic Church, right? The biggest landowner in the world is the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, when we were in Israel just recently, almost every site that we went to, our, our tour guide would be like, and guess who owns this? And look at this, guess who owns this? And we're like, the Roman Catholic Church, yeah, yeah. And then he goes, and guess who owns this? The Roman Catholic Church, says, no, the Mormons. Own this. One. <laughs> the second largest landowner in the world, the Mormon Church. And then so we see these things happening. In fact, there was a time, talking about the Roman Catholic Church in the 12th century, when Thomas Aquinas went to visit Pope Innocent II. This is about 1130 to 1143 B.C., and he goes to visit the Pope, and the Pope is walking around him, showing him the opulence of the Roman Catholic Church, the, the wealth of it. And he takes something from the, from the Gospels, and he says to Thomas Aquinas, you see, no longer can the church say, silver and gold have I none. And you guys know what Thomas Aquinas said? He said, yeah, and no longer can the church say, rise up and walk. There's been this connection between economics and religion. We see it even in our modern day with the, the prosperity movement in the Pentecostal church. Years ago, I remember I used to work for a builder when we lived in Bend, and uh, at that one-year warranty of this person's house, I'm walking through, and they you know, have a checklist of things that need to be fixed. and I went up in the bathroom he was showing me some things, and I noticed on the mirror that was written in marker, God wants you to be a millionaire." God wants you to have a nice house and drive expensive cars. God wants you to be able to travel, to, you know, take your kids, you know, to, to Europe. And I just asked him, I said, hey, you mentioned God, like, are you a Christian? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm like, really? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, boy, you believe that? Oh, yeah, I believe God wants every Christian to be wealthy. God wants them to be wealthy. There's no reason that Christians should be sick or poor. I'm like, where do you find that in the Bible? And you can't, you can't find that in the scriptures. And in fact, the Bible talks about being poor in spirit, right? Being humble. Not being, and he talks about even the wealthy. That's, man, it's really hard for the wealthy to enter in the kingdom of heaven, right? Because why? It's hard to serve two things, two masters. And so we see this connection of economics and religion. We've seen it in our own time. In fact, in Ephesus during this period of time, the temple of Diana became the national treasury. And so it would take in vast amounts of cash and money and then would loan it out as well. And so here's this man, Demetrius. He's upset because his bank account's being affected by what's happening in the city. People are getting saved and they're turning their lives to Jesus. They're throwing away and burning all their old habits and haunts and all those other things. They're getting rid of all that junk, all those tethers to the old way of life. He's upset. And he knows, hey, I can't, I'm going to call all my craftsmen brethren together and people in the city together. And I want to stop what's going on here. And he knows he can't say, hey, guys, the reason why I want to stop this is because my bank account is getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> but he is a smart guy He's pretty shrewd. And he says this, instead he goes, listen, I'm going to tug on your heartstrings and I'm going to develop and give you three reasons why we should get rid of these people. And the first is this, it's a a danger to our trade's good name, he says in verse 27. It's a danger to the temple, the prestige of the temple. And it's a danger to the majesty of the worship of our goddess Diana. Look what it says in verse 27. Not only this trade of of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. That's a pretty bold statement. All of Asia and the world worship this goddess that we protect, that we honor, right? We need to protect her for the sake of her good name, he says. John Pohel says, in Demetrius's reference to her cult being spread throughout the whole world, there's this implicit appeal to civic pride. The great temple of Artemis, or Diana, is here in Ephesus. Its reputation through all the world is based on the fame of this temple. To attack Diana is to attack Ephesus. It's to attack us. It's tantamount to someone standing at the gates of the Crooked River Roundup. And preaching against rodeo. Right? You can't have rodeo anymore. In fact, the strange thing is this: just recently, an article in LA last week, there was a city council committee that passed a proposed ordinance that would virtually outlaw rodeo in LA forever. Ridiculous, right? Blasphemy. No, no, I'm just <laughs> Right? But that's literally what Demetrius is saying. This is what Paul is doing, and so he's saying, "Listen, we got to do something about this. Our trade will lose its reputation, our temple its prestige, our goddess her majesty." And so wisely he disguises his argument in local patriotism, cloaked in religious zeal. You guys ever done that before? You ever cloaked patriotism and? Are your arguments for something in patriotism or religious zeal? I think the church did that a lot a couple years ago, right? Patriotism, religious zeal. We were guilty of it many, many times. But here's the thing. Here's a question. God was doing a work in Ephesus, and it was seen in how it was affecting government and affecting economics. How do we know if the gospel is, is... transforming Primeville. How do we know that? Someone once said this, that the gospel is always at its most controversial when it comes into conflict with economic interests. The gospel is always at its most controversial when it comes into conflict with economic interests. How do we know that the gospel is transforming Primeville? When it begins to impinge upon government and authority and economics. When our local governments our local schools, our libraries are beginning to feel the pinch and squeeze of transformed lives as people begin to put their faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Verses 23 through 27, we see the origin of this conflict, and then we begin to see the progression, verses 28 through 34. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Demetrius proved to be a very skilled rabble-rouser. And the effect was immediate. Verse 29 says that the entire city, the whole city, not just his little sect or his little guild of craftsmen, but the entire city got involved. And it's pretty amazing. If you look at some old pictures and old diagrams of Ephesus, reincarnations, reincarnations, re-drawings of these things. (laughs) of what what Ephesus might have looked like, there were several main arteries. And one of those main arteries um, is this, this one artery that went from the harbor all the way up to this theater. It was called the Arcadian Way. And it was 36 feet wide and 1,700 feet long, almost a third of a mile long. This major thoroughfare, this major artery that went from the harbor all the way up to this theater. And you can imagine as this guy is talking, as he's just starting to to foment the people into a rage, people start flooding the streets. And in chaos, they start running up to the theater. And we're told the theater could hold 25,000 people. There's a lot of people filling this theater. And it's swelling, right? It's completely engorged with people. And look what Paul does. I love this guy. Paul does this. Look at verse 30. And when Paul sees this, it says he wanted to go to the people. The disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. I love this. The the streets are full. It's chaotic, right? You guys remember what it was like in Portland or Seattle or L.A. or San Francisco, all these places where the streets were flooded with people and there's chaos and people throwing stuff and just this full on mobs. And Paul looks at this and goes, this is awesome. This is awesome. All his friends are going, we got to get out of here. He's like, no, this is great. He saw this mob of people, 25,000 people in the stadium. He thought, this is not a problem. This is an opportunity to preach the gospel. And so he wanted to go. But his friends were like, no, Paul, you can't go. And they hindered him from making it um, into the theater. Now, all week long, I've been really sitting on this section because the Holy Spirit really convicted me personally. I'm going to be completely honest and transparent with you guys. I'm a human being. I'm a sinner just like you. And I'll be honest, there are times when I'm tired and I'm weary. And when things happen, I don't see them as opportunities. I see them as problems. And God doesn't like that in us, especially when it comes to people. Whether it be your neighbors, your coworkers, your teammates, your friends, your family. This last week dealing with issues in my family where a situation where I've been trying to counsel for years, and I do mean years, never taking the counsel, doing their own thing, becoming more destructive, entering into more destructive relationships over and over and over again, being stuck and telling that person, why do you stay in this situation? It makes no sense. And they're constantly giving me more and more evidence of why they should move on. And we're like, then move on. And I remember at one time, I'm sitting there trying to be calm. I'm trying to be calm. We're trying to have this, you know, this conversation. The police are involved at this point. They're on the, I could hear them in the, con, on the, they on the phone. They're talking. And we had a plan. And all of a sudden, the last minute, the person changes the plan. And I'm like, I literally said, just stick to the plan. And they hung up on me. (laughs) It can be a problem if I look at it that way. Or it can be an incredible opportunity. I remember years ago when I was on staff in Corvallis as a youth pastor, we were going, just our staff guys were going away to have a short little retreat. There's like six or eight of us. And so we were coming to Central Oregon, and we all loaded up into two cars, and we're leaving Corvallis, heading towards I-5. And if you guys know that little corridor that's right there, and there's a bunch of gas stations right there, kind of where it meets I-5. And we all got out to go to the bathroom and get some snacks and stuff. And we get out, and we're doing our thing, and I go to the restroom, and and I'm getting some snacks and everything. Get back in the car, and everyone kind of starts filing in, and we're sitting there, and we're all looking around, and Pastor Rob isn't there. We're like, oh, must be still going to the bathroom or something you know and or getting some really big snacks maybe (laughs) and so we're sitting around and 10 minutes goes by we're all kind of talking like where's where is rob and and no one has seen him like anybody seen him like no no did you guys see him inside i didn't see him inside you got no one saw him inside no one saw him inside like weird i'm gonna go inside so i get out and i go inside and i'm looking around and checking every aisle nothing he's not there and as i go to the the cashier, and I go, hey, have you seen a guy about six foot tall, you know, goatee in like a 70s feathered haircut, you know, <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, uh-uh. I've seen all you other guys, Are you guys all together, and I'm yeah, but you haven't seen this guy, his name's Rob, you haven't seen him, real charismatic, super nice guy, like, no, I haven't seen him, I'm like, huh? weird, do you mind if I check the bathrooms, yeah, sure, so I go on, and I check the men's bathroom, and it's empty, and I come back out, and I go, hey, do you do you mind if I check the women's bathroom, or he might... He might have gone in there and like, yeah, go ahead. So I'm knocking on the door. There's no one that opened the door and he's not in there. And Come back out, get in the car. I'm like, I don't, know. I don't know where he's at. Like, he's not in there? Like, no, and the guy says he's never seen him. I mean, that 70s feathered haircut's hard to miss, you know? And uh, so we get out, and we start kind of canvassing, looking in cars. Maybe he got in the wrong car, you know? And, and we start asking people at the pump, have you seen this guy? Like, no, we haven't seen him anywhere. Like, man, we get back in the car, like wonder if he's hurt somewhere so we start going behind the gas station thinking that maybe he was attacked or mugged and his body's laying in the alley behind the gas station sure enough he's not there and i go oh, and we check the dumpster like no and pop the lid and expecting half expecting to see his body curled up inside there he's not in there praise god right and so we get back in the car. We don't know. This is like a half hour has gone by. Forty-five minutes has gone by. We're sitting there going, where is he at? So we start praying. And all of a sudden, the door opens. He slides in the front seat as if nothing happened. We're like, where have you been? We were worried. We checked the dumpster for your body. You know? And he's like, oh, yeah, when we were driving down, before we got to the gas station, I looked on the other side of the highway, and there was a guy in a turban sitting on the curb with his head in his hands, I felt like I was just supposed to go to him. So I ran across the highway. I just sat down and asked how he was doing. And he cried. And so I just prayed for him. Now I feel like a total jerk, right? Because I'm all upset. We couldn't find him. And so, but that taught me something. To always look for opportunities and to never look at things as, as if they're setbacks or they're difficulties or they're problems. I don't do it well. All the time. In fact, I probably do the opposite more often than not. But it's a really good reminder to look at people and to look at situations as an opportunity to allow the grace and the presence of God to prevail in that moment. Amen. Amen. So we come to verse 32. And it says, some therefore cried one thing and some others. So now Luke is kind of giving us a picture of what's happening, kind of painting the picture. Some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them didn't even know why they were there, right? Verse 33, and they drew Alexander, uh, this Jew, out of the multitude and put him forward. And it says this, that Alexander then motioned with his hands to try and quiet down the crowd. Right, so he could make his defense to the people. In verse 34 says, And when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Did you catch that? Two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I mean, you've got to come up with something better than that for two hours, right? For two hours, great is Diana. Over and over. Twenty-five thousand voices chanting this for two hours hours straight. The crowd was in a frenzy. And Luke shows his sense of humor by telling us that most of the people had no idea why they were there or what was going on. He says they were confused and most of them didn't even know why they had come, verse 32. Now, confused, they were confounded. Befuddled, perhaps. That's your word for the week. Befuddled, right? But more than that, it says that they were stirred up agitated, fomented. These people were out of their minds, frantic and fanatic. You guys ever seen the mob mentality before? You guys ever been a part of that? You've seen it before? Recently, I was watching this video of a riot that took place in L.A. about 20 years ago. And they were interviewing this guy who was a doctor, really, really well-known doctor. He was a a black man. Um, He was practicing there in the L.A. area. And he had taken a wrong turn and went down this section. And all of a sudden there's this massive amount of people and they're rioting, this massive mob. And he ends up getting pulled out of his car. And then in the commotion, all of a sudden he finds himself just being swept away by this wave of people. And they start vandalizing, throwing things through the windows. And all of a sudden he finds himself picking up a chair and throwing it through a window. Highly educated, very well off. And he goes inside and he steals a TV And they have him on video doing this. And they ask him, why did you do that? And he says, honestly, I don't know. I was just caught up in everything that was going on. The mob mentality. Max Lerner, in his book, The Unfinished Country, writes this. He says that every mob, in its ignorance and blindness and bewilderment, is a league of frightened men that seeks reassurance in collective action. These people were being manipulated by a few selfish individuals for their own gain. They're being whipped into a frenzy for two hours. Complete disorder, complete chaos, utter mindlessness by a few individuals who are only concerned about their own pocketbooks. I always tell my kids this all the time. Whenever you see a mob of people standing around or a mob of people moving in a certain direction... Go the other way, (laughs) because it's only bound for trouble. Benjamin Franklin said this, a mob is a monster with many heads and no brains. (laughs) And so the crowd gathered, and they shouted for two hours. And so we've seen origin, we've seen the progression of the conflict, and now verse 35, we see the resolution. Verses 35 through 41 and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd he said men of Ephesus what man is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus he's talking about this remember Rory was talking about this two weeks ago about a meteor a black meteor that fell from space from the sky and they grabbed it and they carved it into an image of the goddess Diana and they put it in the temple So that's what he's referring to here in verse 35. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined In the lawful assembly, 4, verse 40, we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. Verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Remember in verse 33, Alexander tries to say something, raises his hands to quiet the crowd, they'd have nothing to do with it. This man, a city clerk, stands up and immediately he hushes the crowd. Who was this guy? right well history tells us that he was probably a chief administrative officer in the city he presided over the council of city magistrates and the public assembly he was a liaison officer between rome and the city governments there in ephesus and his main concern was that the disturbance that was taking place might bring about the er or the anger of the Roman officials and somehow subsequently bring about restrictions on their being able to, to govern themselves. The application is this, and this is what I love about God. How many of us in this room have been in a situation that was very difficult and all of a sudden someone steps in and at the right time, at the right place, and what used to be rocky and stormy all of a sudden is as smooth as glass? Anyone ever had that experience in their lives? So when we were in Brazil, as you know, we were missionaries in Brazil. My oldest daughter was born in Brazil and we had to go from Curitiba, the city that we lived in, to Sao Paulo, Brazil, to the consulate there. It's a 10-hour bus ride. We didn't have a car. And so we're two and a half months maybe in the in the country, three months in the country. Didn't know the language. And so we're getting on a bus and traveling for 10 hours with a brand new baby, right? Public transportation in a, foreign country, where you don't speak the language. Yeah? Feel me? So we get there, and then we have to somehow make our way from the bus station through the city of Sao Paulo, which is the second biggest city in the world, right, to the consulate. And then we have to try and explain what we need. And so we get inside, and we're telling them, hey, we need a a citizen born abroad certification, certificate. It's like a birth certificate, right? Right? Um, And so we need this thing. And so the lady's like, okay, well, I'll give it to you. Are are you citizens? Let me see your passports. Give them the passports. What other documentation do you have? What other documentation do you need? I need this and this and this and this and this. Do you have those things? "Uh, No, we don't have that. Okay, well, then you have to go back to Curitiba, get all that documentation when you have it all, then come back here to Sao Paulo, and we'll give you this certificate of a citizen born abroad. And we're like, man, Really? Obviously, it's very emotional. Uh, there's a lot of crying, a lot of weeping on my part. Nothing on that. <laughs> and we're sitting there, and, uh, and all of a sudden, behind the glass, this guy in a suit. And so you're having to deal with a Brazilian, even though we're Americans, we're dealing with a Brazilian trying to communicate this to her. And this American walks by behind the glass, and he goes, stops. He goes, what do you guys need? And we go, well, we need a you know, citizen born abroad certification. He goes, okay, give me your passports. I'll be right back. Goes in the back room, five minutes later, comes out, and here it is. That fast, with none of the other documentation. God does stuff like that all the time. The perfect person, the right person, at the right time, in the right situation, and all of a sudden, everything works out. That's what this guy was in this situation. He wasn't even a believer, but God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, right? And so he's like, hey, there's a riot going on. I want to show the people that are for me that I am for them and I'm going to shut this thing down. And 25,000 people in a moment are shut down and sent home. In a moment. How long did it take me to read that little section? Man, forever? No, for just a few moments, right? Maybe, maybe a minute, maybe two minutes. And all of a sudden, what seemed like something was going to be out of control was turned upside down, right side up in a moment, all because of the grace of God. And so this guy begins to use the same ideas that the silversmiths used to arouse the crowd in order to put down or to, to quiet the group. He talks about the greatness of the city and their, god, and their goddess. So I want to talk about this real quick. Number one, he says that in verses 35 through 36, that the whole world knows that Ephesus is the guardian of Diana's temple image. And because they know that, guys, no one's going to doubt. No one's going, it's undeniable. So don't worry about it. The temple, the goddess, she's fine, right? Secondly, he says this, the guys that are standing here, these two men, Gaius and Aristarchus, these guys are guilty of nothing. You've brought them forward. They have not Um, robbed the temple. They're not reviling our goddess. They haven't haven't blasphemed anything. They're completely innocent and you brought them forward. And then he says this, if you guys have a problem, you need to do the right thing and take the right steps. He says, number one, you need to do this. If you have a private grievance, you need to go to the provincial courts. If it's a public grievance, if it's a bigger thing, then you need to go to the lawful assembly, the Demos, the city council, which met three times a month and plead your case publicly. And finally, he says this, if you don't have that, then here's the deal. We as a people are in deep trouble because we've gathered together and we have no right to do so. And we're breaking the law. You have said that Paul is a danger to Ephesus. Paul's not the danger. You are, he says. You are the danger. The word danger there literally means to run the risk And so he says, listen, you are the threat to our culture, to our livelihood, to this city. You are the person that's putting everything at risk. The people are putting everything at risk for your unruly, disorderly conduct. Paul said this, if there was any illegality involved, it was not on the part of the Christians, but rather on the Ephesians. They were running the risk of being charged with unlawful assembly. I love this. This guy's argument was valid, it was logical, it was fluid. And these four things he brought together, they were completely and utterly decisive, perfectly decisive. The word decisive means it settled the issue. It produced a definite result. And so he dismisses the gathering in a moment, just in a moment, it's over. He tells them, you guys, kind of gives them a little spanking, a little red bottom, so to speak, right? Gives them a little, you guys know the term red bottom? No? No? Maybe I should not okay, we'll move on. So, <laughs> so it gives him a little bit of proverbial spanking and he says, now quit misbehaving and go home. And he sends them away with their tails between their legs. John Stott said this, when the town clerk dismissed the assembly, they went home in a very chastened mood. And so we've seen at the close of the book of Acts chapter 19, miracles, exorcisms, revival, and riots. And through it all, we see the hand of God prevailing. We see the hand of God prevailing. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up as we close here. Why do you think Luke decided to record this story? Kind of seems a little long. I mean, obviously I'm going a little long, so please forgive me for that. Kind of reminds me of World Cup soccer, right? You get... 90 minutes to score a goal, you can't do it, guess what? We're going to reward you with more time. And then if you can't score in the more time, guess what? We're going to give you overtime. And if you can't score in the overtime, we're going to give you more time. So I'm just going to take a little more time here. Why was this put in the book of Acts? Why would Luke record this? I believe that the purpose of Luke recounting this incident was purely apologetic. It wasn't economic. It wasn't theological. It was simply to show that the powers that be have no case against the people of God. They have no case against the people of God. Henshin said this the only thing that heathenism, that unbelievers can do against Paul, against Christianity, is shout itself hoarse. They have no teeth. They have no power against God's people. Now, it's doubtful. that when those people were dismissed from the theater and they went home, it's doubtful that they began to question the truthfulness of the religion. Maybe some did, but probably the masses, they probably didn't think, oh, I wonder if what I'm doing is right. I wonder if the religion that I hold to, the faith that I have is, is true. It's doubtful that they did. Or that they determined in their heart to investigate the things that Paul had been preaching for the last two years there in Ephesus. After all, we've seen it in history, and we've seen it in our own lives. It's so much easier to believe a lie and follow the crowd than it is to do the work and to investigate. But the point is this. Ephesus is gone. It's gone. So was the worldwide worship of Diana of the Ephesians. The city is gone. The temple is gone. The only people that go to Ephesus today are archaeologists and Christians. There's nothing really there anymore to see, to do. All that stuff is gone. The silversmith guild, it's all gone. And yet, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his church are still here. They're still here. The church and the gospel have survived 2,000 years, and they're still going strong. Why? Because truth will always prevail against a lie, and light will always conquer darkness. We do not move forward based upon propaganda. We don't minister with propaganda. We minister by persuasion. How many times in the last, man, two months have we read that when Paul went into the synagogue, what's the first thing that he would do? Is that he would persuade, right? He would reason, he would demonstrate from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he rose again from the dead, right? Over and over. In fact, in this chapter, verse 8, we read that that Paul reasoned and persuaded. He didn't argue, he just allowed the facts to speak for themselves. We are called to share God's truth, not religious lies. We're not to blow things out of proportion. I love to kind of date myself a little bit. You guys remember Dragnet in the 50s? You guys remember that? I, don't, I was not born in the 50s, but I was able to watch those episodes as a young kid, and I love Joe Friday. Cool name, Joe Friday, right? And he's this investigator and he's sitting there, he's taking down a statement, and what's the phrase he used to always say? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Right? As Christians, we don't need to embellish. As Christians, we don't need to try and win an argument. Our goal is to win the heart by releasing the story the true story of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, revealing it as it is, just the facts, and allow God to do what God will do. Amen? Amen. Our motive is love. It's not anger. Our motive is the glory of God. It is not the praise of men. That's why the church goes on. And that's how we continue to move forward. This morning as I was praying, I was trying to think of like, what... What's a verse, Lord? How do you want me to to close out this morning? And God gave me Ephesians chapter six, verse nine. I think it's very fitting for us, especially as we are in a new year, the first day of a new year, 2023. Everything else is behind us. We're hoping to start afresh and anew. The Holy Spirit would speak to us from Ephesians six, nine today and say, let us not grow weary. In doing good don't grow weary and don't stop in doing good for in due season here's the reward we will reap if we do not give up And so I just want to encourage and exhort my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ this morning God is for you in 2023 no matter how difficult 2022 must have felt He's for you. No matter how hard things are, physically, financially, relationally, God is for you. His word, as we said earlier, tells us that his thoughts toward us are not evil, but they're good. And his desire is to give you a future and the hope. And this year, I pray that we would be a people that would walk forward not looking back, walking forward in the paths that Christ has for us this year with our hearts and minds fixed, just as these people ran into the theater in one accord, that we, that we would run forward in Christ together, purposing to follow him and look to him. Amen? The church has prevailed for 2,000 years and has been faithful to do good. And the word of God, because of that, continues to grow and to prevail. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, this morning, we just thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord God, just for an extended time this morning. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here. It's so good to see them. And yet, Lord, we also know that, Lord, your eye is ever upon them. Lord, you're always looking out for them. You're always watching them. Your heart is always for them, for us. And may that be an encouragement for us today who may have felt disconnected or distant or somehow we've created some space between ourselves and you. Lord, may we turn toward you this day. May we cry out to you this day. And Lord, we pray today that we would recognize and sense your presence with us individually and corporately. And that we would purpose as Paul purposed to go to Jerusalem in the spirit, that we would purpose in the spirit to stay on track as Paul would say towards the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith and I have finished the race. Lord, may that be our heart's cry today and this year we pray in Jesus' name.